to Conversations with Irish Doctors for the Environment, where we talk to inspirational people from all walks of life who share a deep commitment to their communities and the natural world that sustains them. I'm Callum Swift, and today I'm delighted to be joined by IDE member Sean Owens and Dr. Claire Watson, and I'll let Sean make the introductions. Hello, my name is Sean Owens. I'm a GP, member of Irish Doctors for the Environment, and it's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Claire Watson. Claire has a long history of environmental and social activism. Uh, Her background was in social work. Since then, she's gone on to co-author a book, Campaigns and How to Win Them, and a blog entitled Chasing Hubcaps, which looks at the influence of human psychology, behaviour and people's reaction to climate change, which is a fascinating insight. Claire has since gone on to complete a PhD at the Marai Institute in University Cork, which also looked at the community response to climate change and the intersections of behaviour. So let's launch right in with it, Claire. No worries, Sean. And listen, just to say, I feel a little bit awkward being called a doctor when you're mentioning yourself in Austin. I'm a doctor from a PhD rather than a medical doctor. I think there's a, in my estimation, actually, I, uh, medical doctors do harder work. <clears throat> Well, we might, <laughs> I was going to say, we might come back to that. Let, let's try and remember to come back to that one, Claire. Well, particularly um, at the moment, anyway. <clears throat> tell me this, but I, I was never quite clear. You, you worked, uh, or you studied in Trinity, is that correct? Yeah, that's where I met Austin, actually. We were yeah. socialising together. He, he, I, did, um, I did social work in, in Trinity. I always yeah. had a, um, I think I always had a kind of desire. I wanted to be a nurse initially, and then... Um, I realized probably wisely that I'm a bit too feisty. Um, and at that time, I would have had to do what the, the doctors were telling me. <laughs> so I decided <laughs> yeah. to go into social work. And actually, partly the reason was because um, if I became a nurse, I would have had to, at the time, you had to live in and you'd have to go to bed at a certain time. And I figured if I went to college, I could do my own thing. So so I chose social work, um, which actually was, was right down my street, to, you know, but when I left college, I went traveling for a few years because I felt I was very young, you know, and to be going in as a social worker, helping them with their problems. Shy, I felt I hardly knew my own problems at the time. So I went off for a few years and I got experience working in various different countries. And then I came back to Ireland. Um, and at the time, it was the, the, the mid to late 80s. The AIDS crisis was beginning to, to hit and I had spent some time in San Francisco and Sydney so I came back being very aware of the implications of that. So I got involved in an AIDS, um, new AIDS NGO, and I worked in that area for quite a few years. But, uh, but I'd been brought up on um, a small farm near Carrigaline outside Cork City. And my parents were organic before people really knew what, what the word meant. So I was, um, I was brought up with a keen sense of the environment and a love of nature. Um, so after... I moved from from the AIDS world. I started working with Greenpeace, and I think that's probably what brought me to to where I am now. So I became much more entrenched in the environmental movement in Ireland, and then I started be becoming aware of climate change probably in the the late nineteen nineties, um, and did a lot of reading around the issue. And then my partner at the time and I moved to Bantry. And we built a straw bale house and um, we tried to, to live what they call the good life, um, which I have to say is, is quite tough. Um, and if you've sort of been used to like I've been used to farming as, a, as a, a young person, but I got out of it, obviously, in my 20s when I was living in Dublin. And I um, 
went back to physical labour and uh, I, I have to say my back kind of reacted to it at times and we realised when, when you try to do everything kind of ethically, uh, we built our house really using all ethical material, you know, all um, sustainable materials and then we put up a wind generator, we put solar panels on our, on the roof and we tried to grow all our own food and we had animals so we had everything like a few hens, a few ducks a horse at one point because we, we thought maybe we could use the horse to pull the trailer <laughs> and I, I think to some extent we were a bit naive because there were the, just the two of us and um, when we had a couple of kids in, in, the, in the fold we, we thought they could help out but the times have changed so you can't really be telling your kids to to do what they used to do in my day you know we just did what our parents told us so I was used to mucking out with the animals um, but it's a bit harder nowadays to kind of make your kids to do that do that unless they're really interested so we learned that um, the way to solve kind of the world's climate and environmental and sustainable problems isn't necessarily to expect everyone to go back farming um, because A, there wouldn't be enough land, but also <clears throat> it's much more than that. It's, it's, um, it's about trying to, to get us all to, to change the way we, we live our lives. So in about 2007, I um, started thinking about what we were doing ourselves. And we had at that stage become quite evangelistic about what we were doing. So we'd been um, doing some interviews in the newspaper. We, we had a small slot on Duncan Stewart's about the house. We then invited people around our, our farm to see what we were doing. And it suddenly struck me at one point that um, only the already converted people were, were interested. So we were really in a bit of an echo chamber talking to people like ourselves, other environmentalists. Um, and at the time, the transition towns movement had sort of sprung up in Ireland where different towns, people in different towns were, were marking their, their area as a transition town into, into the, the new energy future. And um, <clears throat> again, if they were holding meetings, the people who came to the meetings, we, we mostly knew each other, you know, so we weren't tapping into the... Um, <clears throat> excuse me the core you know we weren't tapping into into the town per se we was kind of skimming the edges and I began to wonder initially what's wrong with everyone you know why don't they get the significance of, of the issues we were trying to talk about and then I really started looking inward and began to think what was wrong with me and once I started reading and kind of researching in my own time the whole, um, I suppose, the behavioural aspects around um, environmentalism and, and climate change. I, be I began to realise, actually, that we in the environmental movement were getting it completely wrong. We were, we were going out there preaching and trying to convert people. It was almost like a religion. And, of course, people were backing up. And they were asking, you know, who are you to tell us what to do? You know, and us going around telling farmers who've been at it for generations how to live their lives. You know, it was a little bit rich because a lot of us were urban and city based. And um, so when, when, when I started opening my own eyes, I suppose, into, into the wider issues, I began to understand maybe why um, it was becoming so hard to, to shift um, people and to maybe shift, shift us all to a sustainable future. So that, that, that wised me up. And I wrote the blog that you mentioned, Chasing Hubcaps. Um, well, maybe you didn't mention it. Actually. I mentioned it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's, uh, blog is underselling us. I think it's more of a, a life's work and serious tour de force on uh, the psychology of climate action. So it's a really amazing piece of work. Well done. Well, do you know what it was for me? It was actually a kind of a, a very good um, 
uh, I suppose it was a, a reflective exercise in that I I stopped and I looked at what I'd been doing for years and what we were trying to do on the farm. And I began to have a better understanding of why it was so challenging for us, but also why it wasn't necessarily the, the whole answer. So it made me a little bit humble, actually, because I, I, I think as an environmentalist, maybe I, I felt I knew all the answers. You know, I'd read all the stuff. I knew the science and this is what we should be doing. And at the time, a lot of us were kind of telling people how how bad it was going to get. You know, we, we believed that if you told people that the apocalypse was on its way, um, then everyone would act because they'd be afraid um, not to because of the of the consequences. And I really learned that that doesn't necessarily work. Fear fear only works for people when we know exactly what the problem is and when we can see it and we know how it'll affect us. So, for instance, if I if you were to tell me, Callum, that, you know, there's a hole in the road ahead of me and to be careful, of course, I'd know what to do. And I also know what would happen if I fell into the hole. So I'll, I'll do my best to avoid it. But with climate change, it's such a um, to some extent, it's a nebulous problem because we can't see, feel, touch it. Um, it's a, a, an issue that a lot of us, even now, although it's, it is um, beginning to hit home, a lot of us still believe the worst of it will happen and the worst of it will happen in the future. But we, some of us think it isn't even happening now. You know, it's, it's not that, that easy for people to, to cotton on to, to what, it, what it's um, it, on its impact, you know, because we can always say, well, a flood was caused because we didn't have high enough um, <clears throat> flood defences or the council didn't do whatever, or we need to dredge the river. You know, a, a lot of the impacts today that of climate change can be um, uh, written away as being something else. Um, and also, I think if we tell people that it is going to be such an awful future, in some ways, it's a natural human reaction to shut that down in your mind. You know, none of us want to know that the future is going to be bleak. We want to have hope. We want to, to have a sense that things will get better and that our lives, our children's lives will be happy, you know. So telling people how bad it's going to get can actually shut us down and it can move people into denial or into apathy. You know, apathy is is um, very easy for us to fall into, you know, oh, why bother, you know, especially if it's a big problem. Sure, what can I do that would make any difference? Uh, I'm just one person, so there's no point in me kind of making a huge effort or putting myself out if, if everyone else isn't doing it. Um, so we do need to do things together, especially big changes. And we also look to people in leadership positions and we watch to see if they're actually acting. So for so many years in Ireland, you couldn't see the leadership, our political leaders or even our business leaders taking this seriously. So how could people then in local communities feel that it's up to them to do it? You know, and then there's a sense of fairness. Why? Why should I take the brunt if you guys aren't taking mm. taking any major <clears throat> hit in, in it? And then I think we all <clears throat> believe to some extent that if we act on climate change, that it will be negative and that it will be a loss to, to what we have today. And none of us like losses. It's a, it's a real psychological foible. Um, we, we don't like things ta being taken away from us. So, so when we as environmentalists, we're saying, you've got to cut back, you've got to stop this or stop doing that and stop using energy, that in a, in a psychological way is, oh my God, I've got to do without, I don't like that. So you can react to that as well. 
So the we've messaging got that now with um with COVID, haven't we? I mean, we're you turn on the radio and uh, nobody enjoys having any of their um uh, their luxuries taken away from them. They um they're reacting <laughs> pretty poorly to it. But funnily um, enough, I think Sean, with with COVID, in a way. We, we were more likely to react and we did react because the, the, the threat was so immediate and we could see what, what was the, 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 the impact of COVID. You know, I mean, sadly to say, people were actually beginning to die, you know, so that wised us up last March. Um, and we realized this, this was a physical threat to, to particularly yeah. older people. And um, so we wanted to, to react and then there was really quite uh, the messaging quite early on was quite clear wash your hands don't go out and then it moved into wearing a face mask i think that the trip that the the struggle for us i think is how long the um, pandemic is continuing and you know the stop start nature we're kind of just getting used to one thing and then we it opens up and then we shut down again that that's probably very hard for us but i think um it has been easier for us to to respond to something like COVID because it's very obvious what we what we need to do and what um, the problem is. With climate change, it's much less clear, and the messaging is much less clear. You know, it's almost like well, you got to change everything. You know, if, if you use energy, you've got to do it differently, or you know, you just got to stop this or stop that. Whereas, in a sense, there is a new kind of thinking. Um, and, and you can see it coming out through through what people now say about climate change is that we've got to look at it as a way of moving into a better future. So in a, in a way, it's going to tackle some of the problems that we, we know exist and have been existing for a while. For instance, this notion of us driving everywhere and having such busy lives, you know, maybe there are ways that we can do it that involves less transport. And funnily enough, COVID is helping us with that. You know, because it it bumped us straight away, a lot of us, into working online. So I haven't left my home office for a year. I haven't had one meeting face to face with anything and with anybody to do with work. And I'm kind of getting used to it. And I'm obviously missing um, a lot of the face to face interaction. But I think what will happen to me after this lockdown and when we do when you know, when we're all vaccinated and we're able to go out and about in the new normal, um, I think I will have a blended approach to work. So I would do a lot less driving. There's no question. A lot of the yeah. meetings that I now hold online, I'll keep online. Um, yeah. I love a line in your blog where you reference an author saying that Martin Luther King didn't stir people into action by proclaiming, I have a nightmare. Um, it's I have a dream and it's about providing yeah. a positive vision for the future. Yeah. <laughs> and I th there's another bit which I think is very relevant for this and that's, Humans' ability to act on a perceived threat is very much determined by their perception of how much power they have over the outcome. And you um, you reference the work of Mackenzie, yeah. Moe and Smith about problem-focused coping and emotion-focused coping. And that problem-focused coping is taking action, doing something. And emotion-focused coping is um, ignoring the issue and changing the topic and just protecting yourself. And the difference between the two of them is how much people perceive that they can influence the outcome. Yeah. I mean, people want to make a difference. If if people act, they want to know that what they do will make a difference. And also they want to know that they can do the action. So we need to support people into the different actions that we're asking them to do. For instance, you know, one of the um, the targets in the in the climate action plan is is to retrofit a huge number of houses, you know, over the next year until, you know, by 2030, I think it's something like 300,000. Um, but 
that that's quite an ask of people, you know, because um, it'll cost money. And also it's a lot more than than just being about the money. It's about whether or not um, you're uh, um, in a position to make the change to your, to your home or whether you want to. But also bringing in new technology. I mean, I know this and I should know better because I, I get the issue and why I'm doing it. But I, I live now with a heat pump and I have solar P PVs on my roof and um I've moved actually by the, by the way just from the farm so I'm moving in a I'm living in a small bungalow which I retrofitted a few years ago and um I was surprised at myself at how shocked and a little bit afraid I was of having the new technology in the home um because I realized oh my goodness if it goes wrong who do I contact now obviously I contact the installer but I felt well I'm going to have to pay for that and I did try to get a kind of a bit of a lesson into how to to work the controls of it and I found that the explanation that was given to me was so technical I didn't understand it. So then I felt really stupid. <laughs> and then I felt, well, I can't keep going back back asking stupid questions. And um, I, I realized I was uncomfortable with something I wasn't used to. Um, and the PVs, <clears throat> I know I should be looking on the computer and enjoying the fact that I'm watching the, the, the light affecting my electricity system, blah, blah, blah. I never look at it because I, I'm really so untechnically minded that it's not of interest to me. And I should be. I know and I feel guilty that I should be taking more of an interest in it. But I don't think I'm alone. I talked to a lot of my female friends and we would say, mm, you know what, we really want that they really want the technology, but they just want to put in and then they want someone else to mind it. Um, so in a sense, you have to support people like us. I needed a techie coach someone who would actually hold my hand when I moved into the house with, with the new technology. Um, and a lot of us have fear, even of computers. And I think there is now a bit of a shift because of this online shift that we've had because of COVID and people are getting some support to help them into to doing Zoom meetings or whatever. We also have to have that bridge. We need to bridge that gap between people having boilers in their homes and just turning on a switch for their lights to them worrying that if they move into new technologies, that that will be much more complicated for them. Um, and I think there is an awareness yeah. of that. But um, sorry, sorry, Sean. I was going to say, I think this is something we see every day in work, you know, this issue of adherence and compliance. Mm -hmm. um, so with these marvelous monoclonal antibody technologies that were really the science is breathtaking. But if Margaret doesn't know how to administer herself an injection or her carer is off that day, um, she won't get it. And we're really always humbled by behavior. And that's why I thought, uh, you know, your, your blog is actually really a compendium and it should be a handbook, I think, for any kind of climate activism so that we don't make the same mistakes twice. So if we do go retrofitting, that's a salient point that goes with it. Uh, people might be wary of technology. They might nod and agree and then they might not use it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think it's so important. And what I'm working with, uh, I mean, I work with Marai, the, the, the research centre Marai attached to UCC. And um, I work with a really interesting project down in Dingle. Um, so a bunch of people got together and they set up what's now called Dingle Peninsula 2030. And the idea is to move the peninsula to a sustainable future and in particular looking at low carbon. And um, so four agencies have come together, including ESB Networks, ourselves and Marai and the local community partnership group, NUCID, and then the Dingle Hub. And the idea is to bring the community through the various different actions that need to, need to be done to, to, to move. And it's really interesting because we're very much at the coal face 
of trying to engage people. Um, and so what we're, we're um, uh, I'm involved in writing what we're calling learning briefs. So we're doing reflective thinking about the different projects we're involved in and we're writing up what we're learning from them and what's worked and what hasn't worked. Um, so we're trying to, to make the point that you can't just expect people to shift on their own. They need these support systems and they need a sense that they're doing it together. <clears throat> so you can't expect people to change on their own individually. Um, it's much better if we're doing it in community. So that's part of our, our aim down there. And that's why we've, we've picked a particular community to work with. Which I think brings us back to your opening point about, um, you know, social work might be the most noble profession because um, without um, that, um, without that in, without that knowledge, um, it might just sit there. Um, there's something else you brought up there, you know, that your, your background, I didn't know that, that you were um, in San Francisco, um, you know, at such a timely um, event whenever um, HIV had HIV AIDS epidemic and then the late 80s in Dublin and I know Austin was very involved then as well yeah. and you understand the power uh, the negative power of shame and blame and, and stigma and um, interestingly Austin get, Austin O'Carroll gave a really good uh, speech at one of the conferences recently where he uh, likened the, the stigma that healthcare professionals find when they're blamed for making mistakes, even though the system is set up for for doctors and nurses to make mistakes because we're too busy, we're overloaded, we see too many people, um, to how we blame and shame people for being homeless or yeah. Um, yeah. addicted. And I've probably been guilty of this myself for blaming, you know, farmers for the ills of our um, <coughs> environmental problems, but I wouldn't fancy being a farmer because... Yeah. Um, how, how do you how do you navigate that? How do you? Yeah, how do you I mean that was the, when you were talking about blame and shame. I was thinking of the farmers in my head just there, because I think they feel very blamed, um, and when shame comes into it, that's a real emotional. Um, you know, you just react emotionally to shame, and it can be very corrosive. And I think that I, I mean in, in in Dingle we're working with some fantastic farmers, and they've been. We brought them into to projects like there's been a, a feasibility study on, on the building of an anaerobic digester whereby the farmers may in time when one, when one is built, it'll be community owned, hopefully, um, and it will be using grass and slurry possibly. And it also may incorporate um, food waste from the, the restaurant and, and um, hotel industries in, in Dingo. And um, the interesting thing when, when you when you bring farmers into Farmers, from my experience, that they they want to to fix things, you know, that they they they're big. They do know that there's a problem with climate change. I mean, farmers are the first people to um, mm. notice weather changes, for instance, you know. And so so we cannot we shouldn't patronize farmers. They get it. They know that there's a shift happening in the weather, um, and they know that the the um, the repercussions for farming. Can be, could be very negative if we don't address it. Where they, they're caught, and, and a, a farmer said it to me in Dingle recently, he said, look, I mean, this is a guy, Dinny, he set up this fantastic project as part of the Dingle Peninsula 2030 initiative. He's brought together um, over 99 dairy farmers, and he's very involved, Dinny himself, and he's had an interest in renewable energy for years, and he's very involved in other uh, projects in Dingle at the moment um, to do with kind of he, he had his house retrofitted as part of a trial 
under the ESB Network's Dingo project. And he's also part of that. He's driving an EV now as he's one of the trial participants. There's 15 EVs that have just are driving around the peninsula as we speak. They, um, the 15 members of the community are, are being lent the EVs for a year. Anyway, he's he's got an EV, he's, he's retrofitted his home, and he's also now looking at how you make dairy farming more sustainable energy-wise. And so he's brought other farmers in on that, and they're looking at putting solar PV on their roofs, on looking how they the energy that they use for the milking, etc. But he said to me the other day, he said, look, I would love to do a lot more. You know, I know my farming practices may not be that sustainable at the moment, but I can only do so much. I have five kids to feed. You know, I, I have a family to, to finance, you know, so I think that's what we need to be thinking about if we're asking people to shift. Um, it's about a just transition. Um, you know, we need to be helping people to diversify if that's what we want, and we need to be supporting them in the changes. The other um, thing I think that maybe we don't realize for farmers, and I, I, I watched my farm, my father um, his his grandparents ran a farm and, and they'd had farms for right over the generations. And then his mother moved into the city and my father always hated living in the city. And he swore the minute he could, he was independent, he would go back to farming, which is what he did. He bought a small farm. Um, but farming was in his genes. It was in his blood, you know. So he, at night he would go out and he'd almost, not quite, be singing to the cattle, but he'd check the cattle, you know, especially in the winter when they'd be in the shed. And he would, he would walk the fields and he'd, be, he'd enjoy checking to see which bit of fencing needed to be fixed or what would he do with this piece of land, etc. Um, and I think we don't um, fully understand how culturally um, embedded farmers are in their farms, you know, especially if it's been a farm that's been handed down through the generations, you know. So asking farmers to shift either from dairy farming into growing trees, I mean, that's a whole new ball game on a farm you know and there is a sense certainly in Ireland that when you grow trees you're actually wasting good farmland so there's a you know that's a note, something we have to overcome um, but also asking a farmer to change their daily practices you know so if you told my dad listen you've got to get rid of your cattle tomorrow he wouldn't know what to do with himself because half his time was spent kind of checking the cattle and doing things with the cattle you know so um, it, it, it's about easing people in, into the shift and I, th there's been a good project working in the Midlands around the peat workers and Bordnamona, and yeah. they have invested this. Some EU money has gone in to helping the transition, you know, so helping people who were working in the peat industry to actually retrain or reposition themselves to, to make an income from something else and supporting those those people in, in, in understanding and moving with, with the change. And there really needs to be a just transition for other people whose whose livelihoods will necessarily need to change over time. Well, that's really positive to hear. Um, but so uh, it sounds like there's a lot happening. But do you feel there's any danger that this is a cycle of attention to climate, no. or are we starting I mean, to see things move? I'm an optimist, so I think that I probably always try to look on the on the positive side anyway. But I have to say that. Since I've been working with Marai over the last couple of years, um, we would have a lot of um, interaction with policymakers. And there is no doubt there's a huge shift. There really is. And um, that there is a, a sense of understanding, which there wasn't there, you know, maybe 10 years ago, um, that the politicians get it now. And there's the, the something I watched quite closely, which I felt was very encouraging, was um, the Citizens' Assembly 
which was set up a, a number of years ago and it looked at the, the various issues like um, marriage equality and then abortion. But one of the modules that they looked at was actually climate change. So they had two full weekends of um, looking and being presented to and then discussing the various issues pertinent to climate change. And then they made 13 recommendations to government on what should be done. And these were very far ranging. Um, and at the time, we this was a few years ago, we, at the time we wondered, would, they, would those recommendation, recommendations just sit there? Which is always is a worry, you know, that citizens mm. put a lot of work and, and the Citizens' Assembly is, is um, um, you know, it, it, it's a group of people who are come to, coming together representing the whole of Ireland, essentially. Um, and we watched what the, the, a joint Oireachtas committee was set up and they then looked at those 13 recommendations and they did a very interesting report as a result of their deliberations. And they invited a lot of people in themselves to give them more details on the different issues. So they had um, over about six months, they had people coming in telling them, giving them their opinions and Marai scientists, etc., cetera, were, were called in. We, we were called in at one stage and then they produced the report. And then the government took that report and they made the, the, the Climate Action Plan in 2019. So in a funny way, well, in a very organised way, that was a, a form of democracy. You know, the citizens put together their recommendations. That went to a joint Oireachtas committee, which was representing all the parties. And then that went to the government and they came out with the Climate Action Plan. Now, people would say it was slightly watered down, which it was, but it was a plan. It was a plan with targets. And now at the moment, they're re-evaluating re that plan and they've asked... They've had a consultation process around it and they're going to be coming out quite soon with a new um, version of the Climate Action Plan. And there are very clear targets in that in there. That's so far from the um, the town halls you, you <laughs> described. Uh, and actually, I have a, have a nice one. Um, the first Pampiest uh, Doctors' Conference was in London, I think it was 2018. And this was about the health of a Pampiest diet. You know, it wasn't about ethics or anything like that. And it was sold out to vegans, right? So they all had come to find out the good news about the way they were eating. Right? And it was a big success. So they had another one in Glasgow. And uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. John Allman, was presenting at it. And he looked around the auditorium. And it was the very same people that all come from London to hear the same conference again. Um, <laughs> but you're having these um, town halls. You know, the people who turn up are already converted. But now, 20 years later, um, there's citizens, you know, assemblies, there's Rochtus committees, it's topical, it's something new. Yeah, and I think what I've learned as well, going back to the town halls, that, that it may not be um, enough to just organise a conference, you know, that it, and it, it, there is a tendency for the, the committed people to turn up to these events. But what we have to do is... Um, is move out into where people are at. So that's what we're trying to do in Dingle, is actually not wait for people to come to us or to come to the different projects. We're realising that you actually have to move move out into the community. So we're just about to put out a job ad for a community engagement um, coordinator who would be working full-time on actually moving out into the Dingle Peninsula and trying to draw people into various projects and trying to help and support people in making changes. Um, because it isn't enough to expect people to come to us, you know. And, and the other thing is that we have to take people at, from where they are at <clears throat> too often. And here I go back to the environmental movement. We wanted to change people instantly. <laughs> just do this. Just change and get on with it, you know. Whereas actually people have different mindsets and they have totally different um, ways of maybe looking at the world and understanding action and activities and the purpose of what, what we're doing. So you have to um, be a little bit more 
I suppose, humble and understanding and listen to people, you know. So rather than coming at it, maybe maybe people would change some action, for instance, um, around, uh, say, public transport. People may be interested in having a be better public transport system in their area because they don't want to be wasting money on petrol or they don't um, want to have a car for whatever reason. But they actually would prefer to have a bus system that worked but they're not moving to public transport because there isn't a proper bus system, you know. Mm. So in a sense, it's a, it's a chicken and egg, but it also may not be that they want to move to public transport to solve the climate crisis. You know, they may have other reasons to want to go on, on, on the bus. And we, so we, we need to come at it from action-based discussion rather than ideology. You know, sometimes in the climate discussion, it gets ide very ideological that we've to we've to change the whole system and we're doing everything wrong. Whereas actually, if you tackle it action by action, which is what Mackenzie Moore says, is that we need to actually work with people on the actions because actions often mean that we have to change our habits and our habits are very hard to change. So no amount of ideological reasoning will get me necessarily to stop hopping into the car to go shopping. You know, that's what I've always done and that's my habit. You need to be providing me with an alternative and then helping me to make that shift um, and maybe helping me to not drive as much and, and to cut out some of my habits. Maybe I some people would go into the shop every day. It's just a habit. They, get, they go to the shop um, and maybe they need to be helped to, to change that to going once or twice a week if they're driving. You know, but all, all those um, actions need support. So, so in Dingle, we're very much saying that for communities to shift, you need to have community engagement, number one, and then you need to absolutely have resources to resource the community engagers. We can't expect all this shifting and the support for the shifting to happen with volunteers. So there's a great sense that sure, we'll set up or we'll do it through the tidy towns or we'll do it through the SEAI, Sustainable Energy Communities. And these groups are really good in themselves because they can do so much, but they cannot do the massive shift that is required to get us to, to zero carbon. You know, we're, we're going to have to, to bite that bullet and actually put resources into community development and community engagement, which means that there are skilled people then who know how to help and enable and support people into making the shifts and into working together. It's really interesting you mentioned that, um, the difference between ideology and action, which <laughs> order they come in, because there's a bit in your blog when you reference the discussion over a quintessential American man, and um, this was a number of decades ago, who polls that he doesn't believe in human-made climate change and drives his gas-gobbling SUV and doesn't countenance solar power. And the traditional thought would be that you have to change his mind about climate change first, and then he will change his actions. But actually, what they were saying was that that's the wrong way around. And if you make solar power cheaper than the gas version, and you make really great cycling infrastructure, and all his friends in their neighborhood start cycling, and suddenly he's a guy who has a solar panel on his roof and cycles to work, and he's much more likely, therefore, to acknowledge the climate problem than when he's a guy doing everything against climate action. So you actually have to change their behaviours first and then the, ide the ideology might follow. Yeah. And when it's part of your identity, then that is you then doing it, you know, and you feel good about yourself. Yeah. Um, and the other one is, is trying to help people shift their values. And it's very, you know, you can't force a value shift. 
But values change as your identity changes, you know, so you, you you become proud of yourself for doing this. And then suddenly you realize, actually, I'm quite one of my core values is that I do something about, about climate change. You know, before you know it, there you are. Whereas if you tell someone <clears throat> you're going to act on climate change because it's we want to smash the capitalist state, for instance, you know, people I mean, you only have to look at America to see the um, the the mindset divide between Republicans and Democrats. Um, and unfortunately, for whatever reason, acting on climate cha- change is a democratic action rather than, you know, if you're a, a Republican, you're far less likely to be concerned about climate change. So th- there is a danger when something gets put into an ideological box, then it'll get, um, if you're not in that ideological box, you won't believe in it, you know. And the the other interesting thing is, um, you know, some people may feel that they don't um, care about climate change, therefore... If you talk to them about energy use in the framing of climate change, they won't listen to it. But a lot of people are worried about energy security. Um, so they do worry about the fact that if the oil pipe between Russia or Ukraine and Europe or whatever gets cut off, then we're stuck. We don't have the, have the oil or we don't have gas. So there is an argument for, um, or a discussion to be had with people around the security of our energy. So therefore, it is in our interest to have more home-produced renewable energy because we're in control of it, you know. So if it means we're not so dependent on other countries to, to have that, that energy supply. So there's various different ways of talking about the reasoning for the actions. It doesn't have to, to come from one particular uh, mindset or direction. So do you think it was a mistake in the early environmental movement to associate climate action with environmental action? Yeah, and I think I can say that because I I was an environmentalist. So I can put my own hands up and say, you know, I I mean, I'm loath to be criticising groups of people for what they did because I think we were all learning. But um, I think we definitely, I felt that I would have definitely have made a mistake. Yeah, yeah. And I think the other thing we did wrong was we assumed that we were, people would um, take what we were saying, you know, and I really learned that people generally take messaging from people they respect or from people like themselves, you know. So a lot of us in West Cork are blow-ins and we would have blown in with our fancy environmental rhetoric and tried to then set up transition towns or environmental projects in local local towns and villages. And we weren't bringing in the local leaders or the local um, respected people. We were trying to come in ourselves and and act as the leaders, you know, and that was completely like that's not how it works. You know, in rural Ireland, you need to work with the people who are already established and they know their community and they're respected by community members, you know. So um, I think we were a little bit um, we were cocky, but we also were just naive you know and and a lot of us myself included I used to wear plaits you know I'd have ringlets and, and our our dress is even different you know we looked like environmental hippies a lot of us you know so um if you go back to the identity issue a lot of people felt I, I you know in fairness I don't think it's necessarily conscious this but I think you tend to drift uh, towards people who are who believe um, similar things to you, but also who look like you, you know. So we were asked, we were looking like a bunch of um, green grass hippies. Um, and why would people then feel that they can be part of our group? Because they, they don't feel they have any other um, reason to be part of our group, you know. So it, it, it is, it's quite a, I mean, I know I'm getting into complicated territory and people would kill me for saying you have to watch what you wear um, because that probably is dicey territory. But, but it is true, we judge people. Um, when we see them. 
it's a it's more reflection on the fact that climate change is uh is more than an environmental issue isn't it yes. you know it's the yeah. same way that poverty and war are not solely environmental issues they're human created issues uh, that affect all of yeah. humanity and and the truth will is all of humanity to address sorry Callum, the, the the truth is the environment will survive through through um, I mean it'll be different and biodiversity obviously is an issue but uh, nature and the the planet Earth will survive it's actually the future of humanity that's at risk and I think when you talk about the environment or you use environmental kind of terms people then think it is about the birds and the bees and not necessarily about us um, whereas the truth as you say I mean climate change is a, is an all encompassing issue and it's it's a threat to us all. So we, we need to take it seriously. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that messaging is beginning to come through, but it still does dovetail to some extent into into the environmental box. And I think we all have to be aware of that. But again, if you come down to the simp- the actions that need to be taken by people, you don't necessarily then have to be um, discussing the environment or why why you're doing it as much. And one of the key things is uh, the motivation. And, you know, your blog is fascinating in terms of the psychology of action and climate action. And it's kind of a new area to me, but um, you were referencing different studies, looking at successful campaigns to get people to stop doing risky mm-hmm. things like smoking or risky sex. And they almost never or they never succeed by just telling people the risks and saying, don't do that. Um, appealing on a rational mm-hmm. basis doesn't often work. And what they do do successfully is create a vision of what people want uh, to belong to a crowd, to belong to a movement, to have the respect and admiration of their peers. So if you can incorporate that into your suggestion for climate action, uh, there comes a point when it's actually undesirable for you to have an SUV because, you know, all your neighbours look at you and think, oh, he's still got his SUV. And, and rather than being a status symbol of wealth, it becomes the opposite. And, uh, you know, I know from a personal point of view that I'm more proud about my garden vegetables than I am about my falling apart car or my clothes, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And peer pressure is really important. I mean, we don't admit it as adults that we're um, we're influenced by peer pressure, but we are, you know, we're we're watching people around us. I had an interesting experience. I was buying paint um, in a shop a few few years ago and um, I was wondering because because you see, I think we also have to uh, understand that there's different cohorts in in a given society. So a third of a population, maybe early adopters, and they're the risk takers. So I, I would see myself in that kind of cohort, and um, you know, that I'm prepared to take the risk and to try something new. And then you'd have maybe a, a cohort of people who are more progressive and they, they would be more interested in pushing business and um, the progress of, of society. And they would be maybe a little bit more conservative in their thinking. And then you could have a third of the population who would be more in the settler category. So they would would want things to stay the way they are. Um, they would would be maybe very good at preserving history, and um, you know, but they would be would be a little bit more set in their ways, and they find it even you know quite difficult to change. But they would preserve the history and the way things were. So if you look at it like that, that a given society has maybe three kinds of people in it, you understand then how people's reactions are different. So I went into this paint shop and I was going in looking for the most unusual paint colour for my house. I was thinking, oh God, now what would be interesting? What would be different? And someone walked in and she said to the guy behind the desk, she said, what's popular these days? And she said, you know, what what, what colour, what paint are other people around here getting? So he, he showed her two um, colours that were very popular in the area and she said, I'll take that one. And I just, that was such a learning to me because I went in with a completely different um 
want in terms of colour. I wanted to be different. She wanted to be the same. So, you know, we need to, we really need to bear that in mind. The other thing that's interesting is, is in terms of messaging, a lot of us take, most of us actually take visual, um, vi vi um, a visual kind of graphic much more. We, we, that, we take that in more than we would actual words. So, so visuals are very important. And when I worked in the, um, in the AIDS world, a, a friend of mine who was a drug user, she said to me, oh, my God, those ads that they're showing on television. And at the time they were showing an ad, um, they actually showed someone shooting up. So you saw the, um, the injection going into someone's arm and it was meant to be a deterrent. It was meant to put people off actually um, um, using needles because of the HIV risk. And um, she said, oh, my God, that ad, every time I see that, I want to shoot up. Because to her, a needle meant actually having her next fix. And, and somehow the messaging was, was created by people who weren't using drugs and didn't understand that, you know. So, so we really need to be talking to people and understanding it from their point of view if we want to get the messaging right. So with that in mind, do you think we're... Because there is a, a new wave of... Um, climate awareness and are we making the same mistakes you know I'm thinking about Greta going to the UN and um, so much recoil and I don't know it's about the imagery of someone so young telling us you know and the judgment are we are we making the same mistakes or, or have we learned outside of things? I mean I think we're learning um, and I, I know that there's a um, quite a concerted effort effort certainly we have in Marai but also in other agencies to try and get the messaging right. So I think we're, we're you know, it's always, the first step is always to realize that maybe you did it wrong in the past and you need to do it better. I think we're all still challenged as to how to do it better. Um, you know, because especially with climate change, if you want to give people messages about um, about the risks and, you know, you have to watch how the wording and the term, it, you know, it is quite complicated. So I'm not saying it's easy, um, but in relation to someone like Greta, I mean, that she had to come out like she, she was just a, a breath of fresh air to some extent that got particularly young people mobilized. And I think the impact of having young people in the debate now is hugely important. And I do know that it has wised up uh, quite a few politicians in particular and also other parents, you know, because they're hearing from their kids now. And also, I think it's making it very real to us that it's our children's future, you know, so we can't we're responsible for their future and we really do have to take it more seriously. But I think uh, you're right. I think it was the middle, middle class white male, was it, who, who were more, more likely or, or um, people to, to rear up with, um, with, with her being on, on, the, on the global stage. I mean, my sense is you're, you're, you're always going to upset someone. I don't think you can ever come out with messaging that will not, um, will not upset someone. Um, but it's what you do with that then, I suppose. I mean, I've learned, for instance, not to be so reactive. So initially, when I talk to people, who were maybe climate skeptics or they were skeptical about climate change or, or more cynical about it, um, I would get stuck into the argument, you know, and I, should, I learned fairly quickly that it just exhausts you and you get more angry and more frustrated by it. So I think sometimes you just have to have to not engage then in the argument, you know. So if a message hits, hits makes someone angry, then you try and go, kind of work around it rather than, um, confronting the argument, like getting getting into a heated argument would get, get nowhere. And where, where I think it's quite good, in the early days on the radio, you would often see um, a slot being given to maybe a scientist about who was talking about the facts of climate change. And then 
in the interests of balance, they would put up someone who was sceptical or cynical about climate change. And you'd have this head to head on the radio airwaves. And that was so ineffective, you know, but they felt they had to do it at the time for balance, even though it wasn't balance, because there were a lot more scientists who were worried about climate change than, than those who weren't. Um, but that actually just made people switch off. So people don't like listening to an argument, you know, because you just go, oh, my God. Or it makes you think, oh, my God, that's not for me. And they don't even know what the truth is. So I won't bother with it. But RT has shifted on that. They, they mm. don't do that anymore, which I think is a, is a real um, is a real plus. I think one of the lines in your blog was that uh, environmentalism um, had become too dowdy, too anti-business, and too. Um, so it's nice to see it. It has changed now, and it's uh, even most recently I seen a an advert by Oatly. It was a two-page advert. One page was how kids can talk to their dad who doesn't quite get environmental issues, and the other page was dads. I know your kids are being a bit annoying, but here's why it's important. And um, it was nice to think that, uh, you know, it wasn't a picture of a planet on fire or, you know, something like that. Um, it was pretty clever. So, you know, there's these different re reports come out, like the WWF has a really notable one saying we've lost so much um, fauna and, and flora. And then the IPBS one was just devastating, saying you know, we've lost 80% of wildlife. I wonder, is there a report that says we've lost a sizable amount of our community or community resources you know, with austerity or technology or distraction, we, you know, as someone who worked as a social worker um, in, the, in Dublin in the in, uh, 80s, 90s, and you've called for more resources there, but do you think that that is, um, is, is and it's not as fancy as a Tesla or a carbon capture machine, but is the Dowdy community um, actually the, the primary tool we have in Ireland to, to take on climate? Well, I think what happened probably over the last kind of 20, 30 years that community development in particular lost um, support, you know, government support. And it, um, it's become more like the, the community partnership groups that kind of exist around the country. They, they would have been um, funded and then, you know, um, empowered to do the work within the local community. Now they're almost like um, they have KPIs, they're getting, they're almost like they're contracted to the local authorities to some extent. And they have to, they get specific funding for specific kinds of work. And, the, and one of the aims is often to create employment, um, you know, rather than actually addressing societal issues, they now have to, to prove very often that they are creating jobs out of it. So it's become quite um, commercial in some way. And I think we've lost this notion that community development is a, is a key, um, a key action that needs to be resourced. But I'm hoping that because it's now back on the table in relation to climate action that, that um, policymakers are going to begin to take it more seriously. As someone, as someone said to me a while ago, it's the soft stuff, you know, it's the stuff we kind of take for granted, working with people. And we have moved over the last while into expecting that kind of work to be done by volunteers, you know, so that there is a voluntary local council, there's a voluntary tidy towns committee. There's, as I said, there's the voluntary sustainable energy communities. And they're very, very important part of the mix. I'm not saying that they shouldn't be there, um, but they, they all need to be helped into this new climate action reality, you know, and they, the, the community development aspect, if that isn't resourced, um, you can have conflict, you know, there's no doubt. So, um, you know, the, the, one of the issues in Ireland has been um, local um, reactions to uh, renewable energy developments. 
Um, you know, so you'd see that quite quite a bit around the country that someone or a developer wants to put up a wind farm and then there's a local reaction or a, a solar farm and there's a local reaction mm. and even, even anaerobic digesters. Um, and you can understand, I mean, I've done a bit of reading in on that for, for my PhD and you can totally understand where some of it comes from because people feel they're being dumped upon, you know. Um, so now there's this notion of community energy that, um, and in fairness, the government is beginning to support that. Um, that you encourage people to get involved in their own community-owned energy projects. Um, and with micro-generation coming down the tracks, people may be able to have community-owned solar on school roofs or on local town halls or whatever. Um, but, but a lot of that isn't going to happen without this community development aspect where there's people working to actually help and support people to set up these groups. It's, it's, it's actually it's a theme in um, a chapter in um, there's a new book I- Ireland and the climate crisis you have a, um, a chapter in it about um, this idea of community energy but it's actually a theme throughout the whole book and even um, in my own work we've identified social prescribing so using resources in your own community as a way to not only unburden uh, busy GPs because about 20% of people come with uh, problems that aren't health related, they're, they're social issues. Uh, but we've, we realise that could be something that would even decrease ED attendances. And it's actually a big part of the plan to decarbonise healthcare. And there seems to be this commonality between how you started out working with um, excluded groups, um, HIV AIDS, uh, um, and social prescribing and community energy. And it seems like the future seems to be, it's going to be a bit smaller. Um, yeah, and I mean, COVID has kind of bum started us that into it, into that to some extent. You know, we're all getting to know our five kilometers very well, and we're getting to know our yeah. neighbors. Where a lot of us are really making an effort to shop locally and to support the local town or village. Um, you know, so I think, and and in fairness to Ireland, I do think we have a very good, very strong community network still. I mean, it isn't obviously as strong as it used to be, but we do have um, a good foundation on which to build. And there, there is no doubt that groups like Tidy Towns and the GAA, you know, have, have, have um, their tentacles into every community in Ireland. And I was really encouraged before Christmas, I sat in on a, on a webinar, which was organised by the GAA, um, and they were being supported by the um, Climate Action Regional Offices. And they are, um, they've moved into this thing where they, they've picked, I think, is it about six um, GAA clubs are now working on cutting down their energy use. Six are working on how to, to support biodiversity in their clubs. So they've picked issues. The another one is water use. I think they're looking at transport. And so the, these clubs are now working with relevant agencies to help themselves to make the changes within the clubs. And they also want to encourage their members to make the relevant changes at home. So that's really important mm. to, to see that happening. But again, they were supported by an agency to do it, you know, so it's, it's, it's all about trying to support people to do it and provide the infrastructure of support for things to happen and not expecting things to happen on their own. It almost feels like the GA is a, like a mycelium, you know, tentacles all around the country in this organism you couldn't really get your arms around but it's so valuable for Ireland and i'm not sure other countries have anything like it it does so. seem to be quite yeah. unique to ireland and i have to say like there were loads of people on this webinar and you were asking earlier do do i feel there's a sense of change i was so enthused and empowered from just watching the people saying their bits because they interviewed various people and there was a, an enthusiasm that i would not have expected say 10 or 15 years ago 
coming from the members of the GAA. It was, it was fantastic. So we are beginning to reach out. We are beginning to shift. It's just about how we then support that to continue and to upscale, because there's no doubt we have to upscale. So how do you do? You're such a positive uh, person, glass half full. But is there anything that exercises you? You know, is there, uh, you know, if you see greenwashing, do you uh, get oh yeah, angry? of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what frustrates me now is what happens is, and I, I know it's the beginning of a shift is when the the words are used. So I do see the word engagement and community engagement appearing a lot more on policy documents, and I know people have it as a, a box to be ticked on their desk, you know, much more than they would have had. And I suppose at times I feel frustrated by how how you have to keep pushing the message um, for something to change. You know, it does take a long time. So in relation to community engagement, the words are out there and the, the there is a recognition that it needs to be um, supported in some way. But I'm still frustrated by how slow that support is in coming. You know, so we had to struggle. And in, in fairness, we did get money to, to pay the community engagement position that we are hopefully advertising this week. Um, we, but we had to kind of duck and dodge to get the, get the money. You know, it's, it's not straightforward. And I think there are a lot of people who are in our position. I know lots of people around the country who would love to be in a position to employ someone, you know, but they just can't get the funding because there isn't the fund um, there for them. So it, it's about, um, you know, we saw with COVID that actually some shifts can happen very quickly when they have to happen. And I think the frustrating thing with climate change is we are admitting it's a climate crisis, you know, that there's an emergency, the climate emergency. So that that term is being used. But for people to see then very little happening, then doesn't mean that it's such an emergency. You know, you can't understand how it could be an emergency if we're not then acting quickly. So I think that can be frustrating. You know, how long does it take for the penny to drop or sorry, the penny has dropped. How long does it take for the action then to happen out of that? And I realized because I wouldn't have had a huge amount of experience of of policy circles and, you know, the civil service and working behind the scenes. I have a much better understanding of why it takes more time because it is so complicated and you need to get, have everyone on board and you can't rush into things. But I still think, think we need to move a bit faster. You're someone who didn't wait for things to happen outside of their world. You just uh, made them happen within. And I think uh, that's a really positive example. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something about walking your talk as well. Um, you know, that if you can, you should be actually doing it yourself if you're going to be encouraging other people to do the actions, you know. And you learn from doing it yourself. So, I mean, probably from my own experience, I would say, yeah, I know some of these actions aren't that easy because I've tried them myself and failed at certain things. You know, I mean, I drive far or used to drive far too much, you know, and I'm I'm wondering now, will I get an electric car? And then I'm thinking, oh, gosh, the cost implications of that. And, you know, so some of the I don't jump into all these actions easily myself, but I, I have definitely learned from doing some of them that, um, you know, the, 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 it's worth it. Like, there's no doubt. And you feel much better doing it. Um, but um, I would have an understanding of, of what it takes. Just speaking to the future again, Claire, what would your hopes be for um, the COP meeting um, uh, later this year? I mean, have you anything that you'd like to see come out of it? Or are, you, are you hopeful? I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I think it is going to be, uh, well, I, I'm enthused by the fact that it's in Scotland, actually, because the Scottish um, have moved quite well on, on climate actions. They're particularly good at, clim- at um, community energy, for instance, mm-hmm. and they, they would be very progressive in supporting people at community level, more so than us at the moment. Um, so I'm enthused by the fact that it's there because I think 
the Paris negotiations were driven by the French taking their, their taking it seriously at the time, and I think the Scottish would take it very seriously. Um, I mean, I'm hoping that countries would be brought to task, you know, because it's all very well having targets and saying we're going to do X by 2050, and you know, it, it, we have to be honest. Like, we're we're doing the low hanging fruit at the moment, you know, and that's easier to do. There are harder shifts that have to happen before 2030. Um, so we need to be front ending a lot of that action. And I mean, I know the government is saying that as well, and particularly with the Green Party in there, they know that, you know, but but we have to begin to, I mean, hopefully prior to COP, I think what often happens is the government start making serious decisions or statements about intent. Um, what we need to have coming out is serious action rather than just would, intent. What would your vision be for energy in Ireland? Well, I mean, I think we're quite lucky here because um, we do have access to a lot of renewables. You know, so we have a lot of wind and um, the new solar PV world means, you know, it's not necessarily about having huge sunlight all day. It's about light, um, you know, so we can we are in a position to create a lot of our own energy. But I'm not, you know, I wouldn't be naive. We can't keep increasing our use of energy, you know, exponentially. That's just not going to cut it because we can't keep increasing the amount of energy we produce renewably if we want to to meet the need so we are going to have to look at energy efficiency more more um stringently and also energy conservation and that that's the hard one you know we can't just be using energy as if it was free um you talk so about that in your I, vlog don't you that, that you know the more you save the more you spend the more you splurge the less you turn off the lights yeah, I mean, when you look at action by action, there is a danger that people look at one action. So they buy, say you buy a, an EV car and you f find that you're saving on your petrol costs because you're not paying for, you know, it is cheaper in the long term to run a, an EV. And then you save up some money and then you go off and fly to the Bahamas. You know, we, we you know, while we're talking to people about individual actions, they have to be able to join them up as well, because you don't want your savings from one action then to be spent on a high carbon activity. It kind of cancels it out then. Um, and you wrote about the electrification of rural Ireland under Sean Lamas, that there was this massive national project. Do you see that on the horizon for us? Um, well, you see, that's where I was very enthused. I read that back, book way back in about 2007, and that kind of got me thinking about the importance of local actions, um, because what they did there, uh, like it was just after World War Two. I mean, it was an incredible revolution, mm -hmm. really. The World War World War Two has just ended and... Um, you know, we're we're putting in a massive order for pylon poles, you know, and um, they, they actually, ESB took it really seriously. They they put together these, um, uh, I don't know what they call them, but these, these people would go around the country and they would go into a local area and they would organize a local committee. So they'd go into, your, into the town and they would bring the teacher. I mean, it was usually the respected people in the community. So it might have been a teacher, it might have been a priest at the time and um, other respected maybe local uh, shop owners or whatever, they'd bring them into a committee. And the idea of that committee was then that they would be encouraged to bring people onto the network. Because at the time, it's hard for us to believe it now, people were nervous about um, tuning into the electricity network. And it was mainly about the fact that they would then have to pay a fixed cost because they were used to paying for their kerosene or their oil on a per need basis. Um, but when ESB were coming in, they were asking them to pay the fixed cost for the installation. You know, you pay up front to have, have the um, connection and then you'd have a fixed cost for the behind the scenes or, you know, um, network. 
and people couldn't get their heads around that. They felt that was a bit of a difficult one. Um, so the local community committee was then, uh, their job was to help people to actually decide to connect up. And the ICA got involved and they were telling young women, please don't marry farmers if they're not going to let you have a, a water pump, an electric water pump. And because at the time people were saying, Asha doesn't herself and bring the water and we're grand. <laughs> so um, and the other thing they did was organize um, local demonstrations in the, in the local halls of what electricity can do for you. So they demonstrated a, an iron or an electric cooker or, you know, all the different things that could make your life a bit better. And the farmers would, you know, outside the local co-op, there'd be demonstrations of what electricity can do to a milking parlor, etc. You know, so they gave visual demonstrations. People could see the technologies and they were seeing it in their own home village and town. And to me, that resonated because I just thought, you know, we may have changed now, but we still like to see something. We still like to be asked questions about it and we still like to do it within our community. So in the, in the, back then, 50, 60 years ago, it was about considering human behavior uh, from the outset, involving the community and and then the technology. Uh, so maybe we can learn from that going forward. Yeah, and I think what we've moved into is expecting that the technology on its own is enough. And it isn't. Uh, no. You know, education on its own is not is not enough. You know, you need to engage people. And the, the wonderful slogan I've come up with is the antidote to climate anxiety is climate action. You know, because now we see, particularly amongst young people, people who are getting the significance of climate change, that they are be, there is an anxiousness out there and an anxiety. Um, and the way to counteract that is to is to bring people into actually doing something about it. Claire, I probably only aware that this is quite new to healthcare professionals. Um, I mean, the Lancet has called this uh, um, the greatest healthcare emergency of the 21st century. And Groups like Irish Doctors for the Environment, I'm, I'm fairly new to, Plant-Based Doctors Ireland, there's these kind of groups cropping up um, and you're probably speaking to a lot of them now. How can we learn? How can we be good leaders? How can we do our bit and, and deliver? I mean, I think there's um, th th there's various levels. Like it, within the he healthcare uh, world, there's, there's obviously a lot of buildings, you know, hospitals and uh, clinics and whatever. So I think, you know, the managers that need to be looking at how do you um, make them more energy efficient um, and bring in renewable energy where possible. So there's this structural element and then there's the um, practical. I mean, a lot of doctors um, are in the community, like GPs work in, in every community. So I think that they are, um, if they're aware of the implications of, of climate change for their patients, they can maybe help. For instance, there's, there's loads of evidence now to show that actually if people retrofit their buildings, um, they can counteract a lot of health problems, you know. So, I mean, damp in housing is a real problem, isn't it? Um, particularly people with breathing issues or whatever. Um, so that they're, you know, if, if GPs, for instance, were aware of actually um, recommending to their patients maybe to look at their buildings if they can, um, you know, to, to, to come at it from a health angle that, um, you know, less damp is better for your health, for instance. Uh, yeah. Walking, exercising, you know, that whole thing of operation transformation, you know, that actually um, one of the actions that we need to do for climate change is is walk more, you know, and take more, use bicycles, um, cycle, you know, not hop into the car as much. But that obviously has huge health implications as well, you know. So those are just There's a lovely commonality. You bring it back to community, so maybe... Going back to the very start, you know, I think it is um, uh, uh, 
the key profession, you know, social social work community. Um, I think that's where so many of the answers are. Yeah, and um, I think for, for everyone, all of us, we need to maybe um, bring our own awareness to, to what needs to be done um, and not fall into the, the apathy or the denial category. You know, it behooves all of us to actually take this issue seriously. So within the health industry, you know, people really, and I, and I know a lot of people are actually, because I would hear from, from, from my, my own doctor is fully aware of it, you know, um, but it's how you, there, there is, we are a bit afraid, and I have been over the years, um, bit, bring, you're afraid to bring up the, the topic of climate change to people because you don't want to depress them. So I, I remember in my, my more campaigning days, I'd be the first one to bring it up at, um, at a dinner party, for instance, and I visibly noticed that people would just shut up or people would start clearing away the dishes or doing something. You know, there was this uncomfortableness. You know, people became uncomfortable when you brought it up or it would start an argument. <laughs> so I realized that that wasn't the way to do it. But actually talking about energy is much easier. So if you start talking about, oh, I saw someone with an EV the other day or, you know, I've just bought an EV myself. It's fantastic. People will talk to you about that. You know, that it's much easier to talk about the solutions rather than the pro whatever it is about climate change. It, it can be more contentious and you're afraid of, of bringing people into this kind of sense that there's nothing. It's too big an issue. That we can't do, do anything about it. So I think it's back to that thing of actually talking about the actions and the solutions um, rather than the, the core problem. I feel very all the richer and um, better prepared now for um, your, your compendium on a uh, on uh, how we think about climate, Jason Hubcaps. Um, I mean, just to say that I, that I don't feel I'm an expert on this. That's a really interesting thing with, with climate change. <laughs> it's bringing us into um, a world of uncertainty to some extent, um, you know, that there's this sense of we're not quite sure how the future is going to pan out, um, which is exciting in many ways. And we, we obviously can can help to, 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 to design that future. But um, we need to just be flexible and innovative, you know, and we're constantly learning. So we're always saying that in Dingle, while we're putting out these learning briefs and telling people what we've learned, the key thing is we're con constantly learning because it's bringing up new issues all the time. Claire, thanks so much for coming on the show. That was absolutely riveting chatting to you. And um, yeah, your your blog or your, as I say, Magnus Opum is an incredible resource for anyone involved in uh, climate action. Um, or even more generally, I was chatting to Sean earlier about how it's useful thinking about the psychology of many things that doctors encounter when trying to change patients' behavior um, and improve their their behavior. So it's really a, an amazing resource. Thank you. Thank you thank so you. much for taking the time to chat to us. Yeah, and thank you for chatting. You're great. <laughs>